The world is wrong. Hello, Drodgeheads, and welcome back to the Drodgecast. I hope you're having a really fantastic October so far. I can imagine you're probably re-familiarising yourself with things you had forgotten about, like blankets and hot water bottles, snoods, socks. Remember those? Remember socks? I hope you're having a really fantastic autumn so far, snuggling down, keeping warm, keeping well, enjoying the crunch of the leaves and the blow of the breeze. And I hope you're enjoying the Drodgecast so far, this podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. I recommend you go back and listen to the first couple of episodes. But that is the beauty of the alphabet, as this sentence attests. You can enjoy it in any order you like. And I just want to say at the top of this episode that I'm really sorry I've got that kind of seasonal, autumn into winter, just general that you get sometimes in your body and your sinuses. I've got it, and I wish I could change it like a radio frequency or something. But that's not it's not possible yet. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? If you could have just like a little tuner on the side of your head and you could tune into different kind of feelings of your body. No, I don't feel like feeling that today. I feel like feeling much, much better. And I suppose the answer is, you know, sleep and vitamins and everything. That's, I suppose, a kind of tuner on the side of your head in, 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 a, in a way. But, yeah, I don't have that yet. So, sorry. So, yeah. Welcome to week C. And C this week is for Corpus Quirus, which is going to be talking about bodies, what bodies are, what they mean, and how they intersect with what it means to be queer. To understand bodies, I feel we also have to understand brains, so I would suggest going back and listening to the previous episode, B is for Brains in particular, before getting into this one. Now, in broad brushstroke terms, when thinking about bodies. To me, it seems we have landed in in a world where women are seen as more desirable and men as more powerful. And yes, I am using a very broad brush there. And queer people, I think, are often seen as neither, neither desirable nor powerful. And both that desire and that power are intrinsically linked with our bodies. I wonder in a way whether bodies are like stone. You know, can you carve them into, into any shape you like? a man, a woman, somewhere in between, a tree? Or are they fixed, immovable, unchanging? What is stone, ultimately? Malleable or rigid? Nature would argue if you go to any beach that it is malleable, that it is worn away by the sea, by the impacts of time. Humans even would argue that it is malleable because though we think of stone as the definition of immovability, it's one of the most widely used building materials available. And so to think about stone and ask what that is, you can ultimately then apply that to, well, what is a body? Is a body changeable or concrete? You can't just say, as a human being, being so tied up as we are with symbols, with physical representations of intangible, non-physical things, a body just is. Once a body, always a body. You have to recognise, question what it represents. For better or for worse, we humans seem to really need those categories, labels, representations that we're getting very familiar with to understand ourselves and the world around us. Susan Stryker says in Transgender History that bodies may be physical facts, but the paths they lead us down are determined by societal influence. So, i.e. men can have babies, women can produce sperm. In 2022, I would argue that is an incontrovertible fact, but human society's traditional construction of what reproduction can look like and only look like says, no, they can't. So 
depending on your perspectives, our ideas of what bodies can be and can represent has changed drastically over time. There are some who defiantly say that a woman can only be defined as an adult human female. What do those words actually mean? What do those words mean in collection together? What does adult human female actually mean? Or adult human male for that matter? Anti-trans figures use this as a seemingly definitive answer of the question, what is a woman? But it really doesn't examine or answer what any of those words mean when they are applied, as far as I've come across. They seem to just want a clearly marked door to shut people out, marked man on one door, a woman on the other, and only they can determine who gets through the door, who is permitted entry, who can have a membership card. Even though the person trying to enter may have a valid permit, a valid reason to tell the linguistic bouncer politely that they have no place acting as bouncer, gatekeeper for language, still those bouncers clutch onto the meaning they associate with those words. Is an adult human female someone who's born with a womb? Someone who can have children? What about people who are born with a womb but can't have children? What about the condition in men, gynecomastia, that causes the atypical presence of breast tissue? What about women or non-binary people who have their breasts removed either because of breast cancer or through personal choice? What is the ultimate bodily feature that defines a person? and sex. Is it their sex, their genitalia, or something else about their body entirely? And then what about CAH women, for example, who are born with atypical genitalia? CAH stands for congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and we're going to come back to that subject later. But in all that, what I'm getting at is, how many boxes do you have to tick to be an adult human female? Or an adult human male, for that matter? What is the essential core of those words placed together? that people want to try and use as a determiner for who is allowed to be a man or a woman, a male or a female, but don't seem to generally actually want to unpack. My mum shared a story recently of a study conducted in the 40s in the US around bodies, which was covered in Sarah Cheney's book, Am I Normal? This book tells in part the story of Norma, the search in the 1940s in America for the essential epitome of the human form. Two statues were made by Abraham Belsize and American obstetrician, obstetrician Robert L. Dickinson, and they were called Norma and Norman. Their measurements were supplied by a study of 15,000 young men and women. A newspaper in Ohio, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, launched a contest in 1945 on the back of this study in the hopes of finding Norma, the supposed ultimate depiction of the human female form. About 4,000 women submitted their measurements to the newspaper, and after all of those details were collated, it was found that not a single one of them matched Norma's measurements. According to Cheney's book, what we consider normal, and you can often read desirable into that word, I feel, comes from a subsection of the global population known for short as weird. So that's Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. This weird group makes up less than 12% of the global population, but 96% of all psychological studies and 80% of all medical studies. And ironically, it's probably the least weird subsection of the entire global population. An insight into how we have perhaps come to be where we are, to what I feel is the essential commodification of bodies, bodies being seen as products, as not individually unique, but kind of definable into different sectors, sections, mannequins on a production line, if you will, as ideals to be reflected in our own bodies. This also comes from the US, a story from the US, which happened in the aftermath of the Great Depression at the end of the 1920s. At the time, being able to afford to buy food was, of course, a fragile thing in an economic crisis. So, you know, fabrics for clothes, these were much less of a priority. And around the same time, it was becoming cheaper to manufacture clothes on a mass scale. After World War II, 
These factors had combined with increased advertising and mail-order catalogues to oust made-to-measure fashion from the norm and bring in off-the-rack clothing, clothes made in certain sizes that you could find in any store you went into, cheaper, faster, simpler. This introduced the concept of generic sizing. In the early 1940s, the Works Projects Administration commissioned a study of the female body with the intent of creating standard sizes for selling clothes. 15,000 women were studied based on 59 separate measurements, all the way from shoulder width to thigh width. And the biggest discovery was less physical, however, but more psychological. Women were not comfortable sharing their measurements with commercial stores. So the conclusion was reached that generic sizes, like with shoes, would have to be settled upon. And so we went from personalized sizing to general sizing, which could arguably have contributed massively to how bodies are seen today, not as individually unique, I would argue, but as forms to be squeezed inside arbitrarily fixed ideals. You have to be more like size Barbie or size Ken for your body to be good enough, acceptable, normal. The body positivity movement knows only too well how the more shapes you try and champion as beautiful and desirable, the more pushback you get from the Lego people. Not the Lego company specifically, I want to make that very clear, but you know, people who want bodies and how we perceive them to exist to be within very narrow, block-stick, predictable parameters. One of the books I've been reading recently is from the School of Life, who run really great courses on essentially what it means to be human, how to be more emotionally and socially aware, how to better understand ourselves and our experiences as humans. They also have really great videos online you can check out with wonderfully childlike claymation. Alan de Botton, who set up the school I believe, writes, We appeal to the understandable longing that our personalities be non-tragic, simple and easily comprehended, so as to reject the stranger but more useful facts of our real, intricate selves. So I feel if you apply what he's saying to bodies, essentially, as human beings, we have a desire to be simpler than we actually are. You know, that is an understandable longing that our bodies be non-tragic, simple and easily comprehended. Either is nature intended, in quotation marks perhaps, within an acceptable framework of what a body should be, what you should aspire for your body to be, what you see in the world around you, in you know, marketing, on, on TV, people in the street, whatever it is. My experience of human society in my 29 years or so has been across a wide range of topics that we're told that there's just not enough time or resources to take into account the needs or exact circumstances of the individual. To settle on an acceptable generic size to fit whatever situation is what we typically find ourselves with. Keep it simple. Simple is easier to scale, mass-produce, it spreads and transports better. The individual is awkward because the individual requires a bespoke reaction. The individual is made to measure. The individual is wonderfully unique. So the less unique we can make the individual, the more patterns and cross-sections and groups we can form around that individual, the more we can tie them to other individuals until they cease to be individuals. The easier then it is to know what to do with that individual. You pesky little individual. Before we enter the world of standardization and generalization and tribalism, up to five weeks after conception, male and female fetuses are in fact indistinguishable from each other in terms of their gonads, what will later become their physical genitalia. What a glorious five weeks that must be. No one presuming anything about you before you even are anything. Dr. Sari Van Anders has been working to fundamentally challenge the notion that hormones and brains are not affected by societal influence or nurture. There's a really wonderful zine that's available online that you can check out. I'll put a link in the post about this episode on Instagram so you can have a look at it. And this scene breaks down feminist and queer understandings of sex, gender and sexuality and more. 
I love this description that she uses of the different types of sexuality, the different ways of understanding it, which can, I feel, just as easily be applied to the different ways to see and value bodies. She writes, As you can see, the landscape of sexuality is varied and rich. We could say it's an ecosystem. Lakes are no more or less beautiful or necessary than trees or mountains. Similarly, the ecosystem of human sexuality is vast and no one piece of it is more valid than another. And I would add to that, the ecosystem of human bodies is vast and no one piece of it is more valid than another. The 21st century is seeing the strong challenge of old ideas about hormones, about their effects on our bodies, that they make women inferior or overly sensitive and that they prepare men for dominance and intellectual brilliance, some of the long-standing ideas around hormones and their effects on sex. Is it that as society becomes less sexist, so does science? Or are we polluting the truth with our woke ideas? Or were the ideas we have come to hold as empirically provable never true in the first place? Women's bodies are particularly vulnerable, as we know too well, to excoriating, vicious scrutiny, unrealistic expectations and ideals, and are generally seen as inferior, weaker, inherently problematic and difficult, shameful even. All of which can be challenged and debunked, of course, and I feel should be. Most of all, when you look into how female bodies are composed, how they dance in harmony with themselves, they are absolutely incredible works of nature. On the subject of menstruation, which of course applies to cis and trans bodies, it has been shown in research that intellectual activity is actually increased during the premenstrual period, contrary to long-standing belief that menstruators are less able during this time, a belief that has then become hardwired into our culture. Oh yeah, she's on her period, so she's a bit scatty at the moment. As with studies which pit a group presented with supposedly gendered findings against a neutral group, where the neutral group, say, receives neutral information about gender's relation to maths ability, and the other group receives biased information that either men or women are better at maths, this shows how significant outside perception is upon the performance and self-identity of the individual, particularly around gender. If someone tells you your period makes you less aware, less competent, while also building a culture of shame and revulsion around periods, it's unsurprising that a woman who won't feel able to access that intellectual boost she would otherwise get during menstruation. Abortion rights have been an essentially charged topic this year in 2022, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the earth-shattering message that a woman's body does not belong to her, that a trans man's body does not belong to him, that non-binary bodies are not sacred unto themselves. The motivation for overturning this ruling I feel is driven in large part by long-standing religious ideas about the sanctity of life, that abortion is basically murder, that it goes against God's will, even in cases of rape. That's really not to lay into religious people only because, of course, it's a very nuanced issue that goes beyond religion, you know, but that is one of the core ideas that I've observed behind the anti-abortion, pro-life movement. I do wonder about that idea, that a fetus is supposed to be a gift from God, however it is conceived. If an unborn fetus is a gift from God, then surely the mother or parent who wants an abortion is also a gift but is that gift then faulty because they want that abortion are they not doing what they're supposed to do in their gift-like way what is the point at which you stop being a gift and become i don't know just another toy that needs to be sent back to the factory or have its ability to act autonomously removed from its hardware you know that mother herself by that logic was once a gift that parent was once a gift otherwise they wouldn't have been born it's this bizarre sense of priorities and values that an entity inside the womb that is as yet unborn is ultimately more important than the person carrying it. That the gift giver is less important than the gift. That a body inside a body is more important than the body carrying it. I'm bored now, give me another gift. And once you accept that idea, what does a body signify? 
if the gift giver is less important than the gift, the body inside the body is more important than the body, does that mean that the body is no longer an autonomous being, but is something to be controlled? As River Butcher points out, it's not just men controlling women's bodies, though the Supreme Court decision and decisions historically around women's bodies, trans bodies, was a majority male-led act. It's not just men oppressing women, he says, it's women oppressing themselves to oppress other people. I don't think anyone could have put it better. Furthermore, I'd add that we all oppress each other. It's not the oppression Olympics, that's not what I'm getting at. You know, we're not competing for who has the greatest bodily shame laid upon them. It's me, it's me. It's felt differently, expressed differently, has different impacts on how we feel in ourselves and in our perceived social identifications. In recent years, I've entered into the world of the naturist community. I've gone to naturist events, I've been part of naturist communities, got to really understand what it means to the people as part of those communities, and really started to explore what it can mean for me. And it's really lifted the film from my eyes regarding how we see other people's bodies, particularly women's bodies, and has invited as well a greater consideration and compassion towards my own body. The first time I went to a naturist event was in 2021, in the summer of 2021 to an event called Nude Fest, which happens in the southwest of the UK. And it's essentially a get together for people to have a chance to be naked and have fun in a field. Lots of different events. It's like a week long thing. It's really, really lovely, full of really, really great people. And I went there with the Magic Teapot, which is a traveling acoustic venue that I work for over the summer. And I've been offered to go to it in the year that never was in 2020. Kind of forgot about it. And it came up again, uh, sort of in the aftermath of COVID. And they said, you want to do it? Uh, yeah, sure. That sounds like something I'd like to experience sometime in my life. And sort of arriving in a car, being fully closed with other people in the car. And you see just naked people everywhere. Not something that I was really that familiar with. And, you know, generally being brought up in a society, particularly in the UK, where we don't really have nudist beaches like you do in some parts of the world, particularly in Europe. You know, it just seems like this really kind of odd thing that you're kind of going into some kind of weird cult but of course once you get used to that you just see how perfectly normal it is you know I think it was about five minutes that it took for me to arrive see people you know being generally naked and really then start to question how I would generally look at someone like that if it was in like an ordinary day and I encountered a, a, a nudist person a naked person in public and it just shows you how your eyes are often drawn to the kind of the bits that are meant to be the most tabooed, you know, like kind of the, the sexualized areas and that you can often, without even realizing, see a naked body in a sexualized way. But of course, it's just a body. And when someone is there just because they feel comfortable in their earth suit, in their, in their birthday suit, and they're not putting out any messages like that, it really shows you how much of that is just ingrained in us from, from day dot to not see nudity is something that can just be just just kind of just be there you know and it was a really really wonderful earth-shattering experience for me and has kicked off a whole trajectory for me to to really start to kind of own own my body more and just feel more comfortable in it you know I, I, I love fashion and I, and I love clothes as an expression of of my identity and having fun and playing with things but it's so lovely to feel like you're coming home to yourself and the naturist community is a wonderful, wonderful space for that. Another really wonderful event I've been to recently that I think really challenges the idea of what bodies are supposed to be and the space you can occupy with your own body is an event called Party in Your Pants, which is based mainly in Brighton, I believe, but has other events that happen in London and Manchester in the UK. And essentially, it's pretty self-explanatory. You go along to the location 
you bring your pants and you have a party with other people wearing their pants. And on the surface, that could sound like some kind of sex culty kind of thing, but it really is just people who want to come along and feel, this is my body and I'm happy to have it on show, but I don't want to feel sexualized or given undue attention just because of that. I don't feel like I'm making a statement with my body other than I want to have a really fucking good time. And it's, it's so lovely. And as going to that for the first time and the friend that I was going with was working on the cloakroom. So I was kind of there on my own and having to kind of mix with a bunch of strangers. It was such a friendly, lovely environment. I think that really took a lot of the, the bullshit and uh, sort of defensiveness you can often get around club nights. I've never really been much of a fan of traditional clubbing myself. So this was a really refreshing take on it because, you know, people are there and it's a bit, you know, to begin with, it's a bit unexpected seeing everybody in their pants, basically. But there's UV pens all over the place. There's squirty bottles that some of the staff go around and spray people with if they want to be. And people just come up to you and say, hello, can I draw on you? And it's just a lovely, like, dis disarming thing to be asked by a person. And, you know, you're celebrating your bodies, you're, like, turning them into pieces of art, basically, and just having a good time. And it was really lovely to be in a space where I didn't feel having a male body, what is regarded as a male body, I didn't feel that people thought I was, you know, just waiting for a chance to hit on them. And it really, you know, helped me to do some work in my own head, you know, thinking that, oh, I probably carry that idea around with me and that f therefore affects my behaviour if I'm around, you know, particularly women in a clubbing environment and it's just such a wonderful thing, you know, to be able to say like, this is my body and I want to be able to feel comfortable in it and to feel free, but I'm not doing that as a way to try and attract anybody sexually, I'm not doing that as a way to make a statement, it just is my body. In the summer edition of the British Naturism magazine, Helen Berryman, who's the Women in Naturism coordinator for the British Naturism Association, otherwise known as BN, she writes very eloquently and emotively on the subject of women in naturism. She writes, How many people write of naturism just through blind ignorance? Speaking about naturism and nudity to your friends and family opens up the conversation and the less taboo it becomes. Maybe a reduced focus on the nudity and more on the other benefits being clothes-free can bring is valuable. As Lens from Belgium suggests, today, naturism is largely the thing where you get naked among others. If we can change that to mean the thing that makes you feel good about yourself, or the thing that takes all your stress away, or the thing that makes you feel more confident as a woman, it will attract many more women. That's the thing. Naturism being fully naked, semi-naked, is about reclaiming what your body means in a society that tries to tell you it is there to be sexualized or judged owned by the collective eye. Even in clothes, we are being constantly demanded to abide by the same contractual relationship with society. Again, women know this in particular, with the sense that you shouldn't dress in a sexy, suggestive way because of the reaction you might get, what others might do or infer from your choices. We all know the phrase, you were asking for it. And that's so fucked up. How someone else's lens on your own body and what you choose to do with it that is seen as ultimately the most important thing. I had a strange realization of how our clothes shape us, how outside perspective on what we choose to wear can shape us recently, when I was lying on a friend's couch after coming down from an acid trip. And I was lying in my massive Mickey and Minnie Mouse rock and roll t-shirt that hangs to my knees, curled up with my legs bare, the t-shirt hanging loosely over me like a dress or a nightie. And 
I said to myself in my head, lying in this position, I feel girly. Now, anyone can feel girly. Essentially, I guess it means vulnerable and sweet looking. It's just, we've physically associated that feeling as only being possible through women's bodies and then slapped a feminine label on that so that it is forever bound to the idea of being female, even though anyone is capable of that state of kind of appearing in that vulnerable, sweet-looking way. And that's the silly, twisted reductiveness of gender. Anyone can feel and be anything. To me, a body is a canvas. Drag teaches us this. The concept of makeup and clothes teaches us this. Or as do the concepts we associate with those trappings. And are clothes any different from brains, really? That might sound like an odd question, but let's unpack it for a sec. To me, it feels like a brain, like a piece of clothing or a shoe, adapts to fit the wearer. That's neuroplasticity, which I talk about in B is for Brains last week's episode. Or the wearer adapts the item so that it fits more comfortably to them. Imagine the scene, you get out of the shower, put on your underwear and hear a loud noise outside. You crack the door open, walk tentatively outside to see what it was and can't see anything to match the noise to. You turn to go back inside and a gust of wind sends the door slamming shut. You've left your keys inside and are now stuck outside, practically nude. It's the dead of winter, freezing cold, windy and snowing. You desperately look around, thinking what to do, and you see, miraculously, a pair of Ugg boots, a dress and a fluffy pink coat under the hedge of your front garden, all of them covered, miraculously dry. What are you going to do? If you're a man, are you not going to put them on because they don't match with your gender as you perceive it? If you say you wouldn't, you're either lying or you're an idiot. They won't burn your skin or invalidate your gender. They'll probably keep you warm, though, until you find a way back inside. Is your gender that fragile that you'll start growing a vulva the moment you come into contact with something girly? In the study of hormonal influence on the body, as with many studies relating to human behaviour and health, rats, mice, hamsters, monkeys, pigeons, all have been used as test dummies for humans. Obviously, this can only go so far. A rat, for example, does not have a truly comparable societal pressure expecting him to be tough in his parenting style or for her to be more nurturing and sacrificial in hers. You cannot test a monkey for what career or sport it would like to pursue based on how much estrogen or testosterone it has or what it feels about its own gender identity. But this has been the prevailing logic and behaviorism, which is the theory that all behavior is conditioned through your interaction with your environment, which I do agree with, but how you apply that theory is very important. You can apply it to animals as to humans, yes of course, but you can't apply it in exactly the same way. And that seems to be the logic adopted in these studies, that it was reasonable to map the behaviour of small animals onto the behaviour of humans. I think we can only fully see out the logic of that argument, right, if we start putting rats, mice, hamsters, monkeys and pigeons on construction sites, in nail salons and other traditionally gendered places. Let's see how a male mouse deals with midwifery or how a female hamster gets on, on an oil rig. But science doesn't seem to want to fund a study that puts a monkey behind the controls of a crane or puts a pigeon in an Essex nail salon. Now why is that then? Hmm? What's that science? Too scared that putting animals in the place of humans will show that gender is a human construct mapped onto bodies without adequate justification and that our environment has a seismic effect on our development and people that we become? Why use animals for growing new ears or testing lipstick when you can put them behind the controls of dangerous machinery to test the limits of gender theory? This is the more sensible route, I feel. 
But for now, at least, research is more focused on hormonal influence when it comes to understanding sex and gender in human bodies. The influence of hormones prenatally, for example, can have striking effects. If the male fetus has less than typical amounts of testosterone during pregnancy, it will be born with feminized genitalia. If the female has more testosterone than typically common, they will be born with masculinized genitalia. So, as you can imagine, this is a sliding scale between the commonly recognized forms of a vulva and a penis. This may manifest itself in the form of androgen insensitivity syndrome, which affects male bodies and their response to testosterone. This can either be a full effect, C-A-I-S, C standing for complete, or partial, P-A-I-S. So the effect would be a feminized male genitalia. A more commonly heard phrase to describe this is intersex. Neuroscience researcher Gina Rippon, you'll remember her from episode B is for Brains, points out that such rare individuals allow scientists to study the impact of cross-sex hormones. However, if they're present in both sexes, are they really cross-sex? I mean, obviously, cross means to bridge or straddle to opposing sides to move from one side to another of a clear line. But what I'm saying is, where do you draw that line between male and female? Is sex also a spectrum? When do red and blue make purple? There are multiple stages, shades in between. Where is that true purple, the, the purple standard? Conservative thinking around sex and gender would argue, it doesn't exist, you never have that, there's no middle ground. But is that just too simplistic in the spirit of easier understanding? CAH girls, girls with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, are an interesting case study in this area because I feel they're indicative of society's continual efforts to keep it simple when it comes to bodies and gender. Lifelong medical interventions are required for CAH girls to be ultimately presented as female in air quotes, and they can often be asked to participate in studies to examine the, eff the effects of this condition that promotes atypical production of, of androgens. So, it makes me want to ask, what is the core problem here? Is the problem the way that these CAH girls inherently are? Or the way that they are seen? Are they inherently problematic in and of themselves against nature just by being born in the way that they're born? Or are they seen as a problem, unnatural, undesirable, something that has to be corrected? surgically, hormonally, medically, socially. I'd argue that it's categorically the latter. Society makes a problem out of something that happened through natural means and maintains that sense of a problem through bizarrely narrow concept of what bodies should be. As we've seen with improving access for differently able people, they are not the problem. Of course, it's the inability for society to see their value and adjust to their needs. People with legs can generally use stairs, agreed, so over the course of time, we've come to this agreement, this arrangement in society for those who can't, you make a ramp or a lift. Done. How do you apply that to bodies around sex and gender then? To people with bodies that are not strictly male or female? Oh my god, what toilet are we going to put them in? We're going to have to invent a whole new receptacle for androgynous ways. Oh my god, the horror, the horror. <laughs> No, 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 on second thoughts, let's just submit them to a lifetime of exclusion and shame instead. Yeah, that's it. Done. There's a thing called the Tomboy Index, which was used to compare CAH girls with girls who expressed tomboyish behaviour, as in behaviour regarded as typically male. So, playing male sports, little interest in dolls, and disinterest in marriage, this is what you would expect. This index was formulated in the 1950s, but is still used today in medical research. So we're still applying modern research to old-fashioned ideas, basically. And with old-fashioned ideas, you have to question, as we've done a lot in this podcast so far, you know, if it wasn't provable in the first place, why are you still using it? As an example, then, using the Tomboy Index to look at visuospatial skills, 
which are generally regarded to be stronger in men, shouldn't CAH girls then be similar as they have a higher level of testosterone, or at least better than so-called non-affected girls who have a quote-unquote more normal female distribution of hormones? And could you then extrapolate from that that the idea of male superiority would be context-based in that setting, and that context would then be a sexist society? A task used to measure this was mental rotation, which is the task of seeing an object from one perspective and then matching that object from options of what you think it would look like if it was rotated. Some studies showed that CAH girls were better than non-affected girls, some were worse, and some there was no difference at all. As Gina Rippon points out, the assumption with hormone development and their effect is that they will be context-free, and the only way you could observe their true effects then is in a vacuum. But then you just have a child in a vacuum. And I was raised to understand that you don't put children in vacuums, it's not polite. It can get very messy. So, therefore, when you can't do that, political correctness gone mad, can't put children in vacuums anymore. When you can't observe hormone development outside of the context of society and all its influences rebounding off of each other and shaping the whole of those hormones, what does true mean in this case? Can it only be true for the individual? There's a particularly relevant story here. The case of John Money and Bruce, or Brenda, later known as David, of a child whose circumcision went badly wrong. After the circumcision, the child was raised female and supplied with female hormones. When this decision was revealed to them at age 14, they reverted to their birth gender and sought hormone therapy and surgery to masculinize their body. They later committed suicide in 2004, age 38. This is neither proof nor contradiction of the idea that gender is innate. This is simply a sad story of someone being forced to live a life without the possibility for their consent. Because their genitalia after the unfortunate circumcision was regarded as being unnatural, undesirable. Similar operations and outcomes are performed on CAH women because they too, being seen as somewhere in the middle, are seen as unnatural, undesirable. The presence of both genitalia and unconventional hormone levels means their ability to have children is very slim, if not entirely impossible, which would also be true if HRT and surgery was offered to them as an infant or in later life to make them more in line with one sex or the other. I don't know about you, but I feel their beauty isn't being celebrated. The fact that they challenge the binary ideas of sex at the core of our society are not being truly recognized, and how they might be, as trans and non-binary people are with gender, holding the key to breaking down barriers and stigma around what bodies should and shouldn't be. Studies into prenatal testosterone and their impact on the development of males and females, while promising areas of research, fail to take into account the environmental factors of the children being studied. Social cues are picked up from infancy, so cannot fail to have an impact on the development of the brain, much as environmental issues where we grow up, our diet, whether we have positive or negative childhood experiences, have an effect on the development of our bodies. Let's look at hands for a second. Our beautiful hands. Mine at the moment are covered in the remnants of nail polish, which is a wonderful thing to point out on a podcast. There's a system of measurement around hormones in hands called 2D and 4D. Now, 2D slash 4D rates supposedly indicate high or low testosterone. So if your index finger is lower than your ring finger, that indicates high testosterone levels in utero. So vice versa, a longer index finger than your ring finger would indicate high estrogen levels during pregnancy. However, as with other studies, the results are inconclusive as to whether this means your brain correlates with supposedly masculine traits or supposedly feminine traits, and I don't know what they say about uh, nail polish. It's almost as if these ideas around 
masculine ideas and feminine ideas around gendered traits, maybe they are the problems themselves. Imagine the concept of being tall was regarded as five foot and above. Then a six foot person comes along. You'd have to redefine what was tall, wouldn't you? You wouldn't maintain that a five foot person was a big and I'm a big and next to this new giant, or that the world record breaker for the 100 meter dash in 1946 was just as fast as the current record holder for the 100 meter sprint in 2022. You'd adapt your perception, your thinking. Why can't we do the same with theories about gender? And talking as we are about bodies and gender, the subject of bathrooms will inevitably come up. And I don't really want to talk about this because it gets such undue attention, but I feel I need to unpack why that is in looking into this episode around bodies and try to offer a more in-depth, sensitive and balanced view on it if I can. And just illustrate how insane it is that it gets talked about as much as it does. For me, it seems to come down to this idea, the inflated importance of the bathroom issue in the modern debate around gender. It seems to be the idea that, okay, you're a woman or you're a man, or you're not a woman or you're not a man, because a room full of piss and shit said you are or said you're not. If that's the authority we're putting in charge, the court, judge and jury of bodily excretions, then we really are fucked. Now, disclaimer, I'm recording this podcast episode while I'm staying with family and I had to take a pause there because I started recording the podcast early hours of the morning so I could try and minimise the amount of background noise and disturbance and disruption to people's days. But it got to that time in the morning as I was recording that last bit there where people were starting to get up and genuinely, as I was talking there about the court of bodily excretions, bodily functions, I could hear the sound of my stepdad uh, starting his daily routine in the bathroom. So... You know, this, this, this is a good way to get your um, your family to see if they're, to test whether they're actually listening to anything that you do, any, if they're paying attention to any of the artwork that you put out there. You know, it's a little Easter egg. Yeah, did you listen to my podcast this week? I mentioned you. The bathroom debate is not actually a debate, I would argue, about bodies. It is a debate of symbols. And symbols have more to do with the brain than the body. By which I mean we have ideas, feelings, which symbolise gender and sex and which we then map onto our bodies. Symbols are literally the embodiment of an idea. If you want a really excellent look into semiology, the study of symbols, not the study of semolina, listen to Blind Boy's podcast, episode number 228, from 2nd of February, entitled The Barefoot Accountant. With bathrooms, in terms of their semiology, you have a stick man for male and a stick woman for female. Essentially, one without a skirt and one with one. And while we're on it, the semiology of gender is problematic because the one that signifies male is actually entirely gender neutral when you think about it or it can be seen as that no skirt no indication at all of what clothes are being worn women on the other hand represented by a, a skirted figure they're not skirt shaped though once upon a time they were thought to be or expected to be but that is problematic isn't it because it could imply that maleness is the default and Often, it is. We know this without even realising it. Much like the word actor can be male or neutral, but the word actress can only be female. A friend of mine told me recently when we were chatting about a poet and musician we both know, Gracie Basie, and she was being referred to at an open mic by a compere as a poetress, which really annoys her, understandably. It's poet, I'm a fucking poet. It's already gender neutral, you had it right the first, first incarnation of this word. You didn't have to make an alteration just for me. You know. Whereas some terms like actor imply gender neutrality whilst also being male gendered. This is the tricky 
convoluted world in which we live, everybody. A world which is in many ways designed to fit the male default setting. In her excellent article for The Guardian from 2019, Gabriel Jackson writes, The Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging, which began in 1958 and purported to explore normal human aging, didn't enrol any women for this first 20 years it ran. A physician's health study, which had recently concluded that taking a daily aspirin may reduce the risk of heart disease, was conducted on 22,071 men and zero women. The 1982 Multiple Risk Factor Intervention Trial, known aptly enough as Mr. Fit, which looked at whether dietary change and exercise could help prevent heart disease, just 13,000 men were studied, no women. The result of this male bias in research extends beyond clinical practice. Of the 10 prescription drugs taken off the market by the US Food and Drug Administration Board between 1997 and 2000 due to severe adverse effects, eight caused greater health risks in women. A 2018 study found that this was the result of serious male biases in basic preclinical and clinical research. Now, this lack of involvement of women in medical research and the negative effects on women of having the logic of male biology applied to women raises an interesting point. You might ask, okay then we, if women being excluded from medical research causes them harm, doesn't this show why we need to uphold the sex binary, lean even more aggressively into it, and stick to the idea that one set of rules applies for women and one set of rules applies for men to keep everyone happy and healthy? Well, you could argue that, but I would go beyond that and say it shows that we need to involve everyone to see beyond the impression of two neat camps beyond the impression of a binary. I'll use myself as an example. So, I've had two conditions in my life chillblains and kidney infection, which are statistically much more common in women. Chillblains is an irritation in your extremities, I've mostly felt this in my toes, when your body either cools down or heats up too fast. When it's cold, the cold makes the tiny blood vessels in your fingers and toes get smaller and prevents blood moving around as easily. If you warm up too quickly, the blood vessels get bigger again and blood rushes to your fingers and toes. This can cause pain or swelling. I found this info if you want to check it on the NHS website. It reminds me of when I was a student and it was the dead of winter in the in the north of the UK in Liverpool and um, I was going to the library to do some studying and so coming in from the intense cold probably not being that appropriately dressed because I have a habit of putting fashion before practicality definitely when I was younger and coming in from the intense cold and then going to the intense warmth of a um, artificially heated in a building in the library and after about 10 minutes of being in there, I felt like my feet sort of, you know, just my, my toes feeling like they had, you know, they were popping, like things were literally exploding inside them. And it was incredibly painful and irritating and I couldn't stop focusing on it. And it got to a point where I was just swearing under my breath to, I don't know, try and reduce the pain. And I had to go home like after about 20 minutes because it was just too much. I don't get it so often anymore, but I know after I started to get it more and more regularly, I looked into it and I was like, oh, this doesn't seem to affect men male bodies as as much as it seems to affect women and back to a kidney infection that you know is pretty self-explanatory and i got a pretty bad case of this towards the end of 2021 where at one point i was in bed for a whole week and in constant pain and the point of me sharing all of that is to show what is true for me won't be true for most male bodies at least with that in mind which does beg the question how many irregularities are there in what our bodies react to based on our sex our hormonal balance because, of course, there's not one set of hormones that is exactly the same, like a meal kit, for every man and every woman. Women experiencing the menopause, for example, often go through HRT, hormone replacement therapy, to combat the symptoms due to a fluctuation in their normal hormonal levels. All of which, broadly speaking, does challenge the idea of what is indeed normal when it comes to sex. 
Back to symbols for a minute and thinking about not just the stick people symbols but the circular symbols that we have for sex. So the circular with an arrow pointing up for male and a circle with a plus sign pointing down for female. Even these gender symbols themselves suggest the implied traits of what men and women are classically supposed to be and represent. So male, it implies forward action, a pointed protuberance. Female, it implies synthesizing, bridging, protective even, you know, that plus sign. Could we not view either as inherently capable of both, you know, smushing them together? Like Prince. And on the issue of bathrooms, people do use this issue the idea of having the wrong body for the place you want to do a number to attack trans and genderqueer people. You hear so often things like, but men will abuse identifying as a woman to get into women's spaces to abuse and rape them. Or I remember Republican presidential hopeful Mike Huckabee saying in a campaign speech, what if I'd said when I was in high school, coach, I feel female, so I'm gonna shower with the girls today. Which rather than being a mic drop takedown of trans and genderqueer people as I suppose it's intended, actually says more about the twisted mind of Mike Huckabee than perhaps he realised. We're back to bodies being purely sexualised again, aren't we? So, by that logic, people pretending to be trans or genderqueer to abuse people, however common that might actually be, to leer at male or female bodies, if people were, say, impersonating pizza delivery drivers to get into people's homes and abuse them, would you target actual pizza delivery drivers and attack them, blame them? Would you ban the wearing of pizza delivery outfits, or ban pizza deliveries in their totality? No, that is a clear case of identity theft. That is essentially what is happening with trans people and crimes being committed in bathrooms, or the broader issue of using it as a scapegoat issue to attack trans and genderqueer people. Rather than looking at the crime itself, whether actual or hypothetical, they're looking at the tools used to enact the crime. So by this logic, the sale of balaclavas should have been shelved a fucking long time ago. And tights, snoods, anything that covers the face, Swag bags, they're in every crime, we must stop the face covering. Because then, we'll stop the crime, right? We'll stop the crime, it'll just be done. No, because crime will use anything it can to do what it wants. And vulnerable targets, like trans people, would be a pretty good identity to abuse if that's what you want to do. And sadly, the Muslim community is only too familiar with this, is painfully aware of this in the wake of terrorist atrocities like 9-11, and the Charlie Hebdo massacre. The actions of a militant minority because of a tangential link are seen to define a crucial part of the conversation around the whole group, which is insane. Of course, being a Muslim does not inherently threaten someone's life, nor does being trans. You know, these are very obvious points, but it, that gets so bizarrely lost in these big conversations that get really out of hand around something is essentially so silly as what bathroom you're going to use. And of course it does have serious ramifications about safety, but the issue of safety is about the person that is threatening you or abusing you. And that's regardless of how they present, you know, the kind of, the presentation doesn't really bear into it at all. A predator saying they are trans to access a bathroom to prey on other people is ultimately not a trans person. That's a clear case of identity theft, but no one's coming in to seek damages for trans people, are they? Like you would if someone stole your credit card. They're basically saying, well, serves you right for having a credit card. Even if the person in question who has committed the crime is transgender, the real key fact in their identity is their identity as an abuser. Any insistence upon the fact of their gender expression is a clear attempt to weaponize the issue around gender equality, trying to make an unbreakable link between an identity and a violent act, which, as we know, the news and mainstream hysteria will run with and make the lives of minority people unbearable, whether they're trans, Muslim, or otherwise. American delegate for Virginia in the House of Delegates, Danica Rowan, 
said this on the LGBTQ&A podcast. Way too many people, when they think of transgender, think of a cisgender person wearing a skirt wanting to use the bathroom. That's not transgender. Furthermore, she said, when you discriminate based on someone not adhering to societal ideas of what constitutes femininity or masculinity, you're inherently discriminating based on sex. Yes. Think about it. If an AFAB assigned female at birth woman looks too masculine, for example, and is pepper sprayed or abused for being perceived to be in the wrong bathroom, as I've heard people like model and activist Rain Dove talking about their experience of something like this, that they should be in the men's, they are being abused on the basis of sex, in that they are being viewed as not enough like the accepted representation of their sex. So your sex has a dress code too, as well as gender. Well, I'm aware many people see sex and gender as the same, in which case, why do we have a distinction in the first place? Gender means genre or type, essentially, and I suppose sex is also a genre, a type. You can be male or female in accordance with a binary concept or somewhere in between if you take into account people who are not strictly one or the other, or if you believe that the task of determining what is one and what is the other is not as easy as it might once have appeared. But even then, toilet signs are not actually divided by sex, are they? No one is, as far as I'm aware, or has been running, genital checks at the door to the men's and the ladies, like some kind of dystopian airport security. That's it, sir. Just climb onto the conveyor belt and keep your head tucked in as you move through the genital scanner. Do you have anything concealed, sir, in your underpants that might affect the image on the scan? Oh, your genitals are just that shape, are they? Very well. Next. At least, the semiology of the toilet doors signs isn't divided by sex. They're not sexed per se, they're gendered. Otherwise you'd have a vulva on one door and a penis on the other. Maybe that's a better solution. I don't really know at this point. I mean, a better solution would be just to have one door, in my opinion, because then there's no sense of being in the wrong place. It becomes purely a matter of function rather than a matter of identity, of belonging or not belonging. I don't know about you, but when I'm looking for the loo, I tend to belong to the group that really needs a piss. You know? But until relatively recently, it's been assumed that the average observer could determine your sex and your gender simply by looking at you at the moment when you need that piss. As we know, that's not so easy anymore and isn't the business of the average person anymore. The perceived inherent link between how you are physically and how you present physically is fragmenting more and more with each day, which begs serious questions about how we categorize people based on how they look, by how they dress or what's underneath, or whether we need to at all, whether whether it's any of our fucking business or not. I've been in male, female, and disabled toilets. The only ones that are really different to my eyes are disabled toilets because, you know, they have particular accommodations for more space and support as is required. Male and female toilets are essentially the same, except urinals, of course. But can we just get rid of those two? As the owner of a penis, as the owner of a penis, well, the owner of a penis, please come and collect it from the forecourt. I often get up in the morning naked and go for a pee, right? And the amount of piss that lands on my leg when peeing standing up is obscene. It's obscene. Do penis owners realize how much piss they are unnecessarily transferring from their hose pipe to their drain pipes, their trousers or shorts or legs or whatever, whatever you want to wear on your legs completely unnecessarily? I want a pissy leg free world. It's not really about the gender stuff at all. It's the unnecessarily pissy leg stuff. No more pissy legs. No more pissy legs. No more pissy legs. In my experience and understanding, you only get grief in the toilets if you don't look roughly how you're supposed to behind that particular door, which is beyond stupid. It's a door. It's a, it's a, 
place to go do a number. It's a hangover from a time where identity was perceived to be much more straightforward. You're either this shape or you're that shape. You either wear trousers or you wear a dress. And therefore, logically, you do your business behind different doors. Of course, because you are fundamentally very different. I mean, that might have applied then, but it doesn't really apply anymore, not as widely anyway. And this is where the debate really heats up because you could fairly say, but Ree, we can't just change everything. It's too much work. And besides, there are more important things to focus on. Do we really have to rebuild all the toilets in the world? Sure, there would always be more important, immediate things to focus on than looking at the foundations of our society. But if the foundations are rotten, then everything is at risk. And this affects people at the bottom the most, the people who can't afford to live on higher grounds, the people who can't protect themselves from the abuse and violence that you are vulnerable to if you go against the accepted norms of society, if you go behind the wrong door. I can't wait till we just have gender neutral toilets as standard. Not that I get excited about toilets, bathrooms, you know, but I'm excited about the message that would that would send to society as a whole, you know, because if you've ever been to a festival or a place where they have enclosed loos all along one corridor, you know, which are either gender neutral to be used by all or marked as male or female, but could in theory be used by anyone as their private identical toilets. You've seen how life goes on as normal, whether people recognize they're in a gender neutral setting or not. That's not to say that problems, predators will just disappear in a gender neutral future in that sense, because you know, humans. But at least then you won't be able to say, look, see, transness is making people unsafe. Gender queerness is making people unsafe. It will be clear that people who make people unsafe are making people unsafe. And imagine that smashing down the toilet walls, like the Berlin Wall, except all around the world, the gender wall. Let's rise up, brothers, sisters, and siblings, and smash down the gender wall, and make one giant, beautiful, united, disgusting toilet. Ich bin ein gender-neutral toilet. This podcast is supported via Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash drodge, that's D-R-O-D-G-E, to support the podcast and see how you can get involved. And now, it's time for the gender loot the pause in the show where you may hear some adverts. People trying to remind you that you are just a product and you must also buy products. So I'm going to soothe you into that, ease you into that. I'll like take a break, take a pause, take a bathroom break, but only in the one that matches your genitals, otherwise God will cry and see you in a few. Welcome back. If you heard some adverts, I hope that whatever the people were trying to sell you didn't essentially make you feel that your body is inadequate in any way, that you need to buy something or subscribe to something to feel more worthy, that you need to be beach body ready, whatever that means, or be the best you can be and rub some cream on your ass to make it a more acceptable ass shape. Because as we know, beaches actively repel any bodies that are not beach body ready. I'm sorry sir, ma'am, but that body is clearly not beach body ready. Did you not see the sign? And any arse that is not the appropriate arse shape, I guess either small enough or sexually arousable enough, it's just not going to fit on any chair, is it? I'm sorry sir, ma'am, but your ass is just not an acceptable shape. I'm going to have to ask you to remove yourself from the theme park ride and leave immediately. But please leave facing towards me with, with your hands covering your abnormal ass. 
we don't want to frighten anyone. You are beautiful as you are. As you are. That's your truth. If you want it. And no one can take that away from you. Thinking about my relationship with my own body, I feel that my body has been placed in a society that is essentially asking it to be something that it is not. It is a biologically male body, yes, but it is not socially, ideologically, emotionally what a male body typically is supposed to be. It can be standing up, erratically, and grow facial hair, patchily, theoretically, and impregnate a vagina, biologically. But it does not seek to be the strongest presence in a room by default. It does not seek to dominate as male bodies are supposed to. It does not seek to belittle sensitivity or emotiveness. It does not stride about as if the world belongs to it. That it is inherently owed anything other than respect. That the ground beneath its feet was designed perfectly for it. It does not seek to attack or threaten or undermine. Just as a woman may not feel her body is designed to be sexy, objectifiable, pliable, weak and vulnerable as it's supposed to be from the traditional sense that we are still in many ways left with. That is the semiology of bodies. What do they ultimately mean and who gets to define that? More and more of my favourite quotes around gender are coming from comedian and writer River Butcher. He describes transitioning as recovering myself. Yes. I feel so much of the issues around coming out are a sense of reclaiming yourself because you feel that the world has not accepted you as you wish to be, so you have to accept yourself. I think, hope that in everyone's individual way, that is one of the main essentialisms of being a human. Accepting yourself. Accepting our bodies. Reclaiming our bodies. River also said on the Gender Reveal podcast, I have had to answer questions from so many cis people to be approved of and recognized following my transition. You can't even comprehend it because you haven't had to do it. And that reveals a beautiful truth about the trans experience, as well as the genderqueer experience, of finding peace within your body, feeling that you own it, coming to sit comfortably within it, to love it. And when you think about it, though we may not all require hormones or surgery to achieve that, we are all on that journey to be at peace with our own bodies, to love our own bodies on our own terms. Your version of hormone therapy might be going to a naturist event, to a body positivity club night, modeling at a life drawing class, going skinny dipping, just getting up and dancing on the dance floor. I don't know, that's up to you. Anything that makes you feel good about your own body because you accept it, because you accept that it is yours. I had a very powerful counseling session recently. I've tried counseling off and on over the years since it was first offered to me by my parents when they were splitting up when I was in my late teens. That first counsellor that I had, I think I only went the once, I just didn't get anything from her. I didn't feel that she was there with me at all, it was, it was weird and you know, so much about finding the right counsellor is about feeling that you trust them and that you feel that they're there with you and that they get you. The second time that I went through counselling, it was through the NHS and I ended up in some brutalist office block by Southampton train station, bawling my eyes out to a cognitive behavioural therapist, telling him how I was just falling apart in every possible way, and him listening intently, and then eventually saying, well, if you just refer back to the sheet and work on some of these reframing exercises, we can maybe control that existential sense of utter collapse. So I didn't go back there again. Then I had a good counsellor for four or five sessions, uh, maybe a year or so later, who helped me to explore more openly than, I, than I'd ever done bef before, at the age of 25, my feelings of queerness, gender dysphoria, body dysmorphia. 
but all of those issues were just too much for me at the time, so I regretfully didn't go back beyond those four or five sessions. I don't think I could afford to at the time, now I think of it, because I was, at that point, going through my hardcore white trash phase. I was living in a static caravan park, I didn't have a job, and I'd just been arrested for participating in a climate change demonstration. That was a lean time. And fast forward three years, I've moved to Bristol, had the standard post-COVID, what the fuck am I gonna do with my life now if I go back outside? Crisis. Exploration. And I decided I wanted to also be an actor as well as a musician and writer and creative fruit fly and found my current counsellor who I've been going to for about 12 months solidly. Bit by bit, she's helped me to come out of my terrified shell and I'm more and more happy, confident, able to delve into the really dark nitty gritty stuff as if it was as light as anything. And because she's a gestalt counsellor, which sort of, if it can be boiled down to one concept or idea, is about trying to find wholeness within the self, and that's where you get things you might have come across like chair therapy, where someone will sit and talk to an empty chair, imagining that the person or thing that they have an issue with is in that chair. Or you might even play both roles, you might sit in the chair and say, Oh, you you, you, you made me feel really bad that time, you um, you forgot to uh, take the bins out, Jeff. And then you go and sit down and play Jeff's position and say, Well, you know, think it for my position as Jeff and not taking the bins out. That's how it goes. Gestalt counselling. My counsellor is a Gestalt counsellor. And, you know, there's always a sense with our sessions of not just being present, as all counsellors are, but being present in a bit of a creative, off-the-wall kind of way which is maybe why it suits me so much. She noticed I was doing a somewhat odd stance for someone sitting down in this recent counselling session. I had my back pressed deep into the chair and I was on the balls of my feet as if I was about to pounce to attempt something especially balletic. I wasn't, I was just tense, as I, you know, almost always have been in my body, really, if I think about it, in my meat puppet. My vegan ham pouch, my skin suit, my skeleton costume, my oily human sushi roll, my walking, talking, upright, dehydrated pink sausage. In a word, my body. I think the relationship we have with our bodies, how we channel whoever it is we are inside through the form we emerge inside at birth, that is one of the most challenging parts of the human experience. You know, trying to translate the inner into the outer. Perhaps even more challenging is the relationship other people then have with our bodies, as we've been discussing. What they expect our body to be, how they objectify it, influence, control it without even realising it. You know, it gives us intense pleasure and unimaginable pain. It is just a body when all is said and done, but it is so much more than that when it is how we relate to the world, how we are seen, how we take up space, how we often feel most intensely in touch with the world and the people that we care about. It's our earth suit as was wonderfully described to me recently. In truth, my earth suit, my body, has never felt like it was mine to start with. Going through boxes in the attic recently, I read through lots of old notes, poems, stories, and found a really heartbreaking piece I'd written about how I was looking at my reflection, my body in the mirror, and lamenting the sense that, why do I have to keep working to keep this alive, keep feeding it, resting it, exercising it, sustaining it, relieving it. You know, because my body has never felt enough. It's always felt wrong, weird, undesirable in some way. And a lot of that has been involved with gender and sort of not really knowing how to occupy a male space, you know, whether that's at school, in places of work, you know, in kind of relationship settings. It's always been sort of a bit of a guessing game with me. And I've only really begun to articulate properly this in the, the, the in recent months this, this this year really like you know trying to go some way to explaining the generally distant harsh relationship i've had with it apart from those occasions where i could i don't know go up on stage as a musician and leap about pretending to be somebody else in somebody else's body basically or you know go to a, a costume party halloween party 
or even start a new school in, in a new town as I did I went to five different schools you know I could see how it felt to be whoever people thought I was what my body seemed to suggest and mean to them and that has always mattered more held more sway than what I've thought or at least I've let it. I'm sure this is probably a tragically common feeling, but I don't really hear it being talked about that much, apart from perhaps within the body positivity movement, the naturist community, and the trans and queer communities. I refer back to Sari Van Anders, who talks about marginalized bodies, bodies and the people who hold them who do not exist within the accepted social norms. She writes, one of the things that's really important in SCT, sexual configurations theory, is that because it has its foundations in feminism and queer theory, it adopts a sexual diversity lens. This means that instead of centering all the things that dominant culture might tell us are the norm, and therefore normal, SCT centers actual lived experiences of real people. Everyone has a location. This means noticing how many of us have bodies, desires, attractions, orientations, relationships, and experiences that fall outside normativities central in Western Anglo-based cultures. Sometimes these are called marginalized bodies, identities and experiences because they are at the margins of cultural and social norms. However, when we look around, we can notice how crowded these margins can be and how we're not as alone as we may have thought at first. And ultimately, because we all have bodies and a complex relationship with them in our own way and how they are perceived by others, none of us are truly alone. It's just hard to see that sometimes when we and those around us can hold so much shame, embarrassment and other complex emotions about our human meat sacks. When my counsellor invited me to stand on my feet, I was scared. You want me to stand on my own two feet in front of you in an otherwise empty room? How could you ask such a thing? My body became as tense as a poor little mouse that's just heard the weird little shuffle of paws that cats do when they're about to pounce. To be asked to actively inhabit my body, to be aware of it, to be reminded of how I seek to move with it, how it controls me, that was a highly anxiety-inducing... Inducing? Anxiety-inducing. Inducing. Filling myself with juice. I wasn't filling myself with juice, I was filling myself with anxiety. And that was a difficult thing to wrestle with, trying to inhabit my body in that moment. I got up, acting internally and externally as if I didn't know what purpose this was supposed to serve, and slowly, as my counsellor invited us to slowly move our feet and to move as freely as we wanted about the room while still talking, my words and thoughts began to flow, and so too, bit by bit, did my awkward little prepubescent looking body about the room. Now, on a good day, my body looks like Iggy Pop in his peak of the late 60s and early 70s, that sort of intense heroin-induced kind of fitness, alpha addict. On a bad day, I look like a 12-year-old pre-puberty alien. And that's where it's been since around about that age, I guess. I, I genuinely don't think I've changed much in terms of size or measurement since that point, you know, like mid-teens or so. You know, just remained a sort of lithe, Dorian Gray nymph frozen in time. Frozen in every sense. Watching me move about the counselling room, if you could have, I would have made even the most comedy factor celebrity on Strictly Come Dancing look like Beyonce. Shuffling about the room like Edward Scissorhands, three pints deep and painfully towards the back of the line for the lose. But I was moving, still, still, continually, I was moving, and still, somehow, I was moving but still. But I was moving, in a stress-free situation, in good company, or on stage when I'm really into it. I move good, okay, and I don't give any fucks to anyone. but. It's different when you're in a counselling session and you can't pretend to be anybody else. That one of the main reasons you're there is that you want to learn how to stop pretending and start being. 
more. And it was amazing. Just by moving around or not and feeling, seeing literally in the mirror on the wall in front of me and in the mirrored body language of my counsellor, how much repressed feeling I have in my body, how little sense of control I have over my own body, how my mind has been telling me that the body is, is there to be controlled and limited rather than expanded and liberated. It became so clear I just couldn't deny what I already knew anymore. And it's, it's wonderful and silly how easily a little shuffle from left to right can turn into a sexy gleeful little wiggle without you even realising. And the more free I became in my body, the more free I became with the words coming out of it, the less I felt my throat close up, as it sometimes often actually feels like it's doing, the less I felt the tension in my body rise into a quiet roar of frustration and self-loathing. I'm not saying it was RuPaul's Drag Race up there on my feet with my counsellor, but it felt just as loud and proud and emboldening. When we sat down to do our standard five minutes before the end compress, any chance for final thoughts or to go over what had been said, I felt such a heavy but beautiful release wash through me. And my head started to race and I had to stop talking for a moment. And I laughed to myself and to my counsellor, this will be a lot to unpack. And as she always says to me, there's no rush. Take care, be mindful, listen to your body. That's the mantra you have to have with anything that's gonna be worthwhile. Counseling for sure. Yes, you can have focused CBT sessions of six weeks at a time. CBT didn't really work for me when I engaged with it because it wasn't right for me. I needed something more in depth, but it does work for the right people at the right time. But you cannot fix anything worth fixing overnight. We know this, we forget this all the time because the quick fix is a myth and a lie. That's what capitalism increasingly tries to sell us, I feel. The ease to change ourselves almost instantly into our best selves by buying something or chasing something. But like free food at a buffet, you won't appreciate it, you won't remember. It won't change you in any lasting way. It won't really feel like it's you. And with our bodies and our minds, our brains, it's an ongoing experience of trying to listen to what we want for it and what it seems to want for us. Because sadly, if we don't know what we want and what it wants, we are so vulnerable to outside influence and generally not of the good kind. That's what capitalism in its modern form is built on, depends on. It relies on you not feeling enough and not knowing what you want and being willing to surrender your body and your mind and your desires and your repressed pains and fears to whatever it has to sell to cater to them, to distract you from them. In Joe Dispenza's book, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, he writes, Please understand that advertising agencies and their corporate clients fully understand the notion of lack and how it plays a commanding role in our behaviour. They want us to believe they have the answers to take away that emptiness by our identifying with their product. Now, that may sound heavy and, you know, we can't be perfect, of course, certainly not when it's around us all the time. But the more we learn to listen to ourselves, to trust our bodies, to trust our minds and our feelings, our gut, our instinct, whatever it is for you that seeks to guide you, the happier we will be. This makes me tangentially think of an argument I hear coming up more and more from conservative voices on trans issues, which is, what about people who want to have one arm cut off? This is something my favorite conservative commentator, Matt Walsh, pondered whilst talking about trans issues in an extract from his film, what is a woman? Now, this to me is another case of taking an argument or debate to its furthest extreme to blur the real issue. A one-armed straw man, if you will. A one-armed straw person. But I see in the same debate accusations from conservative people that people from or representing the LGBTQI plus community just 
won't answer these kind of questions. And to be fair, these kind of questions are extreme. It's totally fair not to want to answer an insane question. There's another name for why people ask these questions. It's the dead cat argument, which the idea behind this is to distract from a question or issue that you yourself are uncomfortable with. You pose a question of your own that is so ridiculous that it takes the focus of the conversational debate so far away from where it was it compels you to look at the rotting corpse of the dead cat that has just been slapped on the table between you. Politicians are particularly familiar with this. Tories, for example, have used it a lot in the past 10 years or so when digging into Labour. Say Labour make a point about a lack of fiscal responsibility by the Tories, and the Tory minister will without fail come back and say, Well, they should know. They're the ones who took us into the recession in 2008 and said there was no money left. Huga fours and righteous groans from the Tory side. This answer is so wild and out of context. The Labour minister probably wasn't even elected or a politician in 2008, but it achieves its aim in turning the heat up on Labour and forcing them either to back down or wade through the stench of dead cat to pick it up and try and dispose of it without embarrassment or getting blood all over them. A Labour MP might use their own dead cat these days of responding to anything a Tory says by shouting, and they said they'd get Brexit done too. The dead cat argument. In this case, the cutting your arm off argument. All that being said, however extreme the question around gender is, I want to try and answer those questions if I can, because although a person who is supportive of trans rights and gender diversity will understand it's an extreme question, people who are critical might not. So I want to help avoid this being weaponized if I can. You know, the sense that, oh, you won't answer that question, that means you've lost the argument basically. Even though, disclaimer, Trans and genderqueer people should not be expected to answer questions about why someone wants to have their own arm removed. Because, hey, those are different issues. Involving different people. With different motivations and internal and external factors. So, my take on this is a case of why you might feel you need that transformation. Why would someone feel they need their arm removed? Perhaps because they feel, I don't know, that it never should have been there. Because they want to be seen by society as someone who's been through something really challenging and they lost it in the process? Or they've had some kind of trauma related to that arm and want to be rid of the arm and therefore any sense of connection with the trauma, perhaps. With being trans, you can become the person you wish to be through hormone therapy and surgery or indeed social transition. Yes, you will not be completely biologically female as an AFAB or AMAB person would be. You will be biologically a trans woman or a trans man. Socially, which is as much as anyone really has any business knowing, you will be seen as a woman or a man or somewhere in between. There is a condition, a very rare condition, with reportedly fewer than 500 cases ever having been reported, called Body Integrity Identity Disorder, where a person wishes to remove or amputate a limb to achieve a sense of wholeness. There's an Australian man called Robert Vickers who knew from the age of 10 that his left leg didn't belong on his body and after being prescribed antidepressants, tranquilizers, and antipsychotics to help cope with the depression, he ended up submerging his limb in dry ice at the age of 41 until the pain was so unbearable that he had to be taken to hospital, resulting in amputation. So, as a trans person can become the person that they see themselves as and where they fit in within society, in the case of Robert Vickers, you know, losing your arm, removing your own arm, your own limb, your own appendage. You can become that person too, as far as society is concerned and you're concerned. But exactly who is that person? You can become a woman without any surgical or hormonal transition at all, in my opinion. And this is a theory called self-identification. Same as you can become a man. Look at the case of model and activist Rain Dove, for example, who tells the story of when she was a teenager of working with lumberjacks for several weeks. All of them thought she was a bloke. She even managed to convince them that she had a penis by 
peeing with her back turned and they then presume from the spray emanating from this person they thought was a bloke, there must be a penis there. And when her, her identity was revealed, they were so convinced they told her, we saw your penis, we saw you peeing. You will have an easier time being recognized perhaps if you go through medical changes. Though that being said, I was confused for a woman at the checkout in Tesco the other week. I had some big floaty sleeves on and an exposed waist and the woman at the, the counter said, and, and the lady next, oh, excuse me, the gentleman next. You know, there is, of course, a social element to transitioning, how you're perceived by and how you present to others in society. There is not, it seems, a social element to being a one-armed person, not in the same sense that there is a social element to being a man, a woman, a genderqueer person. You cannot, as such, present as a one-armed person. I suppose you can cleverly conceal your arm, unless people want to see it for proof, which, would be none of their business, as with trans people and gender, that might be enough for someone who has a strong desire to have one arm removed. But if they really want to have their arm removed, yes, I feel they need psychological support to try and understand why that is. It needs to be understood why they feel they should have one less arm than they currently do. And here I just want to make an important distinction that gender expression and transitioning is on a spectrum, whereas having an arm or not having an arm is, I reckon, binary. So yes, I feel someone who is experiencing body integrity identity disorder is in need of psychological support to try and help them through the feelings they are expressing. And you know, that is something that is required in the, the trans experience. You know, people are required before they seek hormone therapy to have psychological support. And you know, when they have the hormone therapy, when they have access to that, they must be on that for at least a year before having access to surgeries. You know, to understand why they feel that a part of their body needs to transform to reflect who they are, they have to go through an initial process. And with trans experiences, you are perhaps working to correct something you feel should have happened, but didn't. It d depends who you talk to. With removing your arm, that is something that can happen to you in the course of your life without medical intervention. In many ways, losing your arm is easier than medically transitioning. Now, that might seem crude, but it's true. If trans people could sacrifice a part of their body, say one of their fingers, and in return become the body and gender they align with, I'm sure every trans person would go with that. Plus, being disabled, differently abled, you know, that is not a social construct in the same way that gender and sexual biology are. You have a condition or have suffered an event where you are at a perceived disadvantage to others. So potentially disabled people, differently abled people could reject someone who had voluntarily had their arm removed through experiencing body integrity identity disorder. Or, you know, they could reject them with the perception of you're not really disabled. Obviously, cisgender people say this to trans people about gender. Why a person would want to remove their arm, feel they need to do it to feel whole, I can't say. I will never understand the reason why you would want to do that to yourself. As I'm sure some people would never understand why someone would want to transition. But ultimately, that is not up to trans and genderqueer people to figure out, justify or critique. It has nothing fundamental to do with being trans or genderqueer. Yes, there are tangential links about bodies that can spiral into wider questions about what is permissible within society around medical treatment. But again, bringing up the issue of if you want to transition, what about someone who wants to cut off their own arm? That is not the responsibility of a trans person to figure out. That is the responsibility of medical professionals who conduct research and studies and work with the person who is presenting the condition in question. And the person themselves. I note that in his documentary, What is a Woman, as far as I'm aware, Matt Walsh did not interview a person who wished to have one of their arms removed. Snowflake. The question may be the same, 
between these people that have been thrown together here, somewhat arbitrarily in my opinion, trans people and arm removers, people with body integrity identity disorder, why do you not feel at home in your body? But the answer is different, the motivation and emotions and whole situation around and behind it are different. That is where conflating them becomes ridiculous. They are superficially related, but at their core they are so fundamentally different. To me, it's like asking an engineer who specialises in upgrading trains to green energy to upgrade a plane to green energy. Yes, I can do the job, they might say. I understand the science, but I don't specialise in planes. It's, it's an entirely different vessel, though sure, you're trying to do the same thing. It's essentially a difference of context that cannot be overlooked. Yes, it is overlooked because the person making the comparison clearly has a hard stance against the thing they are comparing. You'd be able to call bullshit if someone on the debate show said, right, why are you saying we should transition trains to green energy? What next? Do, do you know how difficult it is to run planes on green energy? Think of the children. You'd wonder, why is this person bringing in such a wild example that barely relates to what we're actually talking about? What are they trying to achieve? What are they afraid of? It's the one-armed straw man argument. Not a phrase I'd ever thought I'd coin. But that's what it is, ultimately, I feel. A distraction piece. It doesn't fundamentally strike to the heart of trans issues because it is not a condition being consistently presented by a trans person seeking gender reassignment. And I don't think anyone raising it is coming from a place of compassion for either people either people who want to remove an arm or trans people. Matt Walsh clearly regards trans and genderqueer people as extremists. Why else would you bring up, in relation to the issue of what is a woman, the idea of wanting to cut off your own arm? That's an extreme expression of body dysmorphia, only 500 reported cases ever, which can then be related to gender dysmorphia, yes, in a tangential way, but it's not strictly related at all. It's what Gina Rippon refers to in her book, The Gender Brain, of a whack-a-mole approach to research into brains around sex and gender. When one theory or idea is disproved or debunked, you move on to another one. You don't really care what it is that actually proves your point, you just want to prove it. On the issues of trans bodies and someone who wants to cut off their own arm, or someone who wants to become another race even, I mean, on that subject, look up the Channel 4 series Would You Rather on debating being transracial. Yes, there are correlations between all those conditions. However, they are fundamentally different. They are expressing the same wish to change the body they were born with for fundamentally different reasons. You wouldn't expect a person who wants their arm removed to talk about what it means to be trans, would you? So why do you expect trans people to try and do the same? There's my take, and I hope that anyone listening who believes the two issues are essentially the same. If you don't agree with my answer, I hope you at least respect the fact that I have tried to answer it. I don't think it is the responsibility of trans people to answer these straw man, one-armed straw man type questions, but in the podcast I feel it is my duty to answer questions around issues of gender, however difficult or frustrating they may be. It wasn't a question stick strictly around gender at all, but it was used in the context of a gender debate to make a point about gender, so I'm happy to try and answer it, and have clearly therefore also opened the door to a Pandora's box of insanity. I mean, I don't know that you can open the door to a box. I think it's called the lid. See, I'm falling apart already. As a related aside, there's an actor called Angel Juthria, and I heard about her listening to the Scroobius Pit podcast, and she's got a bionic arm. So she maintains her independence, is able to work and thrive as an actor through the support that medical science has and continues to offer her. I'm thinking about that. How is HRT or gender-affirming surgery any different? I bet she wanted to cut off that arm in the first place, though. Maybe that's it. 
Maybe after watching too many Transformers films in the noughties, bear with me, right? Society views transgender and genderqueer people as some kind of future race of bionic cyborgs that's gonna take over the world. I mean, if Marvel or DC are listening, please can I write that script and play all the characters and be everything in it and also have front row seats at the screening and keep all my costumes, please and thank you. I'd like to keep both my arms though. Imagine if people said about the comedian Adam Hills, for example, and I don't want to pick on Adam, but he is famously a comedian who has a prosthetic leg. Are you going to say to him, why are you lying, Adam? Why are you pretending you're able-bodied? For those who know, he's got a prosthetic leg which helps him live the life he wants. And for those who don't, it's none of their fucking business. Those who see him out and about will assume he's got two legs, will not assume he's any less of a person, less of a man. And if they did know one was prosthetic, what difference does that make really anyway? And kind of by referencing that, I'm saying, how are trans and genderqueer people any different? It's funny, when people bring out that phrase, what nature intended, it comes up a lot as a challenge against trans people, genderqueer people, how they should be both physically or socially, what their bodies are essentially allowed to be or represent, what nature intended. Nature? Okay honey, you wanna go there? Let me give you some nature. Don't lecture me on what nature intended by posting on a social media platform using a phone that is connected to a satellite in space as you type with the use of opposable thumbs from inside an artificial building wearing synthetic clothing and perhaps at that moment digesting the remnants of a microwavable fillet fish. Where'd you draw the line on what nature intended, sweetheart? Did nature intend you to be a whiny little bitch? I guess so, because if you can see it, it's possible in nature. Therefore nature must have intended it, or at least intended its possibility. Either nature has provided the potential for all that is possible for us to make use of, or we all go back to being monkeys. Or beyond that, should we not get back in the trees, but devolve beyond that and get back in the sea? Should we shrink back into bacteria form, or beyond that even be part of the Earth's crust that is formed by the decomposition of all living things? It's like the Stuart Lee joke about immigration, which is one of my favourite bits. Coming over here, it's the bloody poles now, isn't it? Coming over here, fixing everything. Before that was the Indians and Pakistanis coming over here, inventing a national cuisine. Before that, in the 16th century, the bloody Huguenots, bloody Huguenots coming over here from medieval France, doubting transubstantiation. Before them, it was the Anglo-Saxons in the 5th century, bloody Anglo-Saxons coming over here from northern continental Europe with their inlaid jewellery. I'm not going to do the entire bit as much as I would love to. Go and watch it for yourselves. It's glorious. But he ends with... Bloody fish coming over here, coming out the sea and providing the basis for our entire evolution as a species. Bloody fish. The point of all that is which? Where do you draw the line where nature said to itself, Right, that's it. We'll stop there. That's, that's, that's all. It's done. Perfect. It's just as I intended. Then the humans started messing things up. What are you doing? I didn't intend that. Stop evolving. Stop changing. Stop making little tools and gifts with your opposable thumbs. Stop wearing that fabric. It's only meant for people with vulvas. Another comedian, famous for different reasons, and who has been in the news a lot in recent years around trans issues, is Ricky Gervais. So, here's my take on the Ricky Gervais joke about trans people. Now, I start this take with an admission of wrongdoing of my own, something I did wrong and feel bad about. I used the word cripple making a joke, and this was on a workshare kind of application called Slack when I was working in a co-op cafe, and it was over one of the lockdowns, and at the time I had a broken ankle and wasn't able to come into work. I was doing sort of more admin-based stuff, and we'd been having some bother at the cafe from people who were protesting lockdowns, and sort of as a joke, I was like, oh, if I come down there and stand in front of the shop, you know, with my broken ankle and my crutch, maybe they'll think differently about giving you guys trouble. And 
in the context of that joke, I used the word cripple, which one of my colleagues rightly called me out on and schooled me on. And I don't know why I just hadn't thought of it as an offensive term. And I, I think I was a bit defensive when I, w I was definitely a bit defensive when I was ch chatting with this person who called me out on it. And I acknowledged the wrongdoing and I apologize for that. And I'm not going to use that word because it doesn't it doesn't belong to me you know it's not a kind of word i can reclaim because i've not had a lived experience of the person who that word has been used against in the past in a derogatory way and i've seen some overly sensitive feelings around language you know i feel you can take it too far i think we should definitely try and be sensitive to how words hurt people but you, you can take it too far sometimes the same colleague actually on the same Workshare app took issue with some language that somebody had used when describing the amount of rapeseed oil that had been collected in the cafe for using in the fryers. Someone had said, Can we stop ordering rapeseed oil for a while because we've just got a stupid amount? And this person said, Can you please not use the word stupid? I feel it's offensive. Which made me think, Well, who's it offensive to? Stupid people? If a term is used to dehumanize and belittle a personal group, people outside that group don't get to own the experience of redefining that word's meaning. Like, someone whose house has been burned down or washed away, you can join in and help out, but ultimately, you don't have to live there. You don't have to go through the motions of that person's emotion and experience. Jared Carmichael, the comedian and the host of the Hot 97 show he was on, said it best when talking about cancel culture and the top so-called edgy comedians of today, Dave Chappelle's, Ricky Gervais, Louis C.K. Carmichael said, you can't make a joke about charged subjects and get angry at the backlash. Don't have false anger about the backlash. You wanted that. Don't be mad that you accomplished your mission. You can't make jokes and then the people have a right to get mad and then you say, oh no, don't cancel me. So right, I am getting around to my take on Ricky Gervais's trans jokes. They're ultimately jokes centered around trans bodies and bodies are in many ways the most vulnerable parts for trans people and queer people. As they are, I feel, for everybody really. But that is often where the battleground seems to be. You know, the amount of shame we all hold about bodies, as, as I've been talking about, you know, the amount of sh shame we all hold about them within them is overwhelming. And for queer people, our bodies are how we express our queerness most visibly often. And so they are vulnerable to jokes and criticisms and abuse, as everybody's bodies are. Take Ricky Gervais's most recent special. He says, trans women are women. Okay, ladies, just meet me halfway, lose the cock. Now, that is funny, I have to say, in the sense that one plus one equals two. You're pointing out, haha, a male body has a penis, a female body has a penis, haha, haha. Sure, that's funny in that sense, in that you have observed that Something that is normally so is now not normally so. Oh look, it's sunny, but we're in Britain. Ha 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 ha. Sure, you can make that joke, but why would you? Is it intelligent? Is it saying anything new? Does it take into account the complexities and sensitivities around the subject matter? Because the subject matter, at the end of the day, is real people with emotions who are intensely vulnerable in a society that largely is rejecting them. To make an intelligent joke that is sensitive and includes everyone in the joke, trans people and others would be more I don't know, one plus two divided by the square root of five of 69 equals two. Sorry, maths isn't my strong point. But clearly neither, at least not anymore, is making intelligent jokes about taboos a strong point of Ricky Gervais's. The Office, I loved. Extras, I loved. Afterlife, I loved. Funny, awkward, full of humanity. Ironically, though his most recent special is called Humanity, there's nothing humane about making cheap jokes about someone's body, especially when you don't seem to have even thought much about the issue other than the basic facts. Ricky Gervais is not responsible for how people interpret his new women joke, but 
he is using the language of people who will be attacked, whether he means it or not. If I was consciously aware that my choice of words could empower bigots and aggressors, as would have been the case if I carried on using the word cripple, potentially, I'd think a lot more carefully than he seems to have done. And ironically, as James Acaster pointed out in his 2019 special, it's okay for Ricky Gervais to joke about trans people, but making jokes about Ricky Gervais being out of touch and desperate by joking about trans people, hey, 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 you leave Ricky alone. The issue around trans bodies and cisgendered bodies is, again, on that issue of what is more important, subjective view or perceived objectivity. Ultimately, you cannot tell me what my body and my identity means to me, okay? And I cannot tell you what a body that looks like mine and an identity that presents like mine means to you. I am compassionate and supportive of people who have been abused by men and are fearful of a body in a space they feel should be free of male bodies. I can see how they would be scared, cautious, angry towards my body potentially, a body that was male at birth coming into their space if that transpired. But I will not be treated as if I am a weapon or an aggressor just because I look a certain way or am perceived to look a certain way and belong to a certain group. I feel like that's kind of showing a bit of a potential touch nerve for me there. You know, and that all begs the question, how can you reconcile with someone who believes your view of yourself is less important than their view of you? Virginia House Delegates Representative Danica Rome again, and she believes that trans women are, or trans people are only deemed to be valuable if you're essentially fuckable. You know, that you seem to adhere to the highest beauty standards of whichever gender it is that you align with. And she compares it to the Amy Schumer sketch, um, where Amy Schumer enters an idyllic glade filled with older female actors and comedians who are now in the realm of the unfuckable. They're basically too old to be considered fuckable. She says, Trans women are fetishized, expected to fall into certain categories of acceptable beauty or perish. I've certainly been on that journey as an AMAB assigned male at birth person, living in what is perceived as a male body. Having more body hair that is visible, there is the inherent pressure that I felt to remove this if you want to present in a feminine or androgynous way because body hair or an excessive amount thereof certainly visible amount thereof is traditionally considered very manly I saw a comment shared by non-binary performer and writer Alec V Menon with someone on the internet telling them you'd be so beautiful if you just shaved all your body hair off I've been there I felt my body hair was disgusting icky only permissible as visible if I was happy being seen as male. If I wanted to present as female or androgynous, out with a razor and two to three hours later in the bath and numerous cuts and scrapes before I could be seen, see myself as acceptable, truly beautiful. It's funny how we can have one set of ideas for what a body means and represents, a body being something physical, and one set of ideas for other physical things, like buildings. We know we can make a change about how we refer to physical places and things, how we perceive them, what value they have. I've lived in Bristol the last three years and since the Colston statue was toppled, a fair few places and things have had their name changed because of the negative association with the name Colston. We now get the bus to town through Stokes Croft and we'd go past what was known as Colston's girls' school. It's now called Montpellier High School. The bus announcer says high school with the first part edited out making it sound like a squished robot high school. If we can grasp this for places and know after a while people just won't know or care what it was called, why can't we for humans? Why can't we evolve our idea of what we can be through our bodies? I understand the emotional connection, why people struggle to see how what they thought was a man or a woman, how they identified with that on an emotional level, level with that person or concept that is now being posited as something broader or different. And that's it. As I said in B for Brains, 
emotions seem to be the most powerful factor in how we view the world and the people in it. But you can't expect your emotions to freeze things in time, to freeze people forever, to freeze bodies. As Ricky Gervais so eloquently said, come on ladies, meet me halfway. Exactly, meet us halfway, Ricky. You can pander to transphobia to make your living as a comedian by making lady penis jokes, and we can call you a dick for doing it. You can appeal to that sense that gender and sex are binary for a cheap laugh that will make you a lot of money. Those of us who disagree can audibly disagree. I think a very important distinction to point out in common discourse around trans issues and trans bodies is that it's almost always trans women that are discussed publicly, criticized, joked about. I personally have never seen a debate around single sex spaces, bathrooms, what body parts are permissible within a gender framework and the center of contention as a trans man. Certainly not in the mainstream. There is however a wonderful episode of Middle Ground by Broadcaster Jubilee I really suggest watching with five conservative cis men debating five trans men on what masculinity means. Now, I'm not saying I want us to redress the balance and start having a go at victimising trans men. Hey, you trans men, fancy taking some of the flack for a bit? Here, have some vitriol and abuse. Come on, boys, meet me halfway. Absolutely not. What I'm saying is that people have more of an issue with trans women because, I think, they believe male bodies to be inherently more threatening and toxic than female bodies, specifically the male penis. That is seen to many people as a weapon, and to be fair, to many people it has been and is used against them as a weapon to rape, demean, debase and abuse them. This, however, is not the fault of trans people, of course. If someone who has medically or socially transitioned abuses that trust of being seen in their gender identification, that's on them. That's not the majority of trans people, not the vast majority, not even close. Going about their lives, living respectfully and considerately towards others, simply wanting to be accepted and seen for who they are. Anyone who is permitted access to a space and then abuses the trust placed in them in order to abuse another is simply an abuser. Doesn't matter what that space is, who that person is. The majority of incarcerated are men. Does that mean men are inherently evil? Statistically much more so than women? No, there are multiple reasons for why that could be the case and a lot of it has to do with social conditioning and neuroplasticity, I would argue. Bodies are not weapons. A male body is not a weapon. A female body is not an object. We need to reclaim our bodies, own our bodies for fuck's sake. We need to remove the collective enabling of prejudice, okay? If sex is the only way to separate us, why do we need to have was born with a penis or was born with a vagina on our passports, our driving licenses, our company file? The only person who should know this is your doctor, your parents, your partner, whoever else you want to tell. What business is it of everybody else's? You know. This is my want, this is my place in the world. I just don't understand why it's so important, why we have got to this place. And I recognize that the system has control of us and that it won't give it up lightly. It likes knowing these things, I think, because they are convenient for control. And let's get back to that story of Norma from the top of the podcast, the search for the so-called ideal woman, the woman who signifies the norm to aspire to. As that search indicated, that woman does not exist. What a woman can be, what a man can be, is as infinite as all the men and women who exist, have existed and will ever exist. Much the same way as you can't look at someone and say, you're not successful enough. But on whose terms? You may be making an average, modest living, but are able to achieve all that you want to, so by your standards, you are a success. But you don't have a big house, a fancy car, really expensive things, so by this other person's standards, you're not a success. Fine, we can agree to disagree. Where humans struggle to agree to disagree is bodies, physical representations, there is not a universally accepted physical representation of success, right? It exists, can exist, in an infinite number of variations. 
with humans and gender and sex because we are physical because we have bodies that embody what gender and sex are supposed to be it is believed that you can go up to someone look at their body and say you're not a woman you're not successful enough that is what i would argue is the inherent beauty as well as the inherent difficulty with bodies they can be whatever you want whilst also being something everyone else will also have an opinion on you know but ultimately your opinion is the only one that matters the only one that truly matters. I come back to Helen Berryman from British Naturism. Since discovering naturism myself, not only have I lost the clothes, I've lost the body image fears too. No longer do I compare myself to others, I accept my body and I'm proud of the vessel that keeps me alive and well. Who cares about the odd scar here and there, the cellulite, the rolls? These are badges of honour and symbols that I have lived, had a child, survived surgery. Naturism is one of the easiest things to try. It's not dangerous or unhealthy and it's not permanent. As Linz from Belgium says, it's not like getting a tattoo. If you try naturism and don't like it, simply put your clothes back on. It's as simple as that. I have discovered a feeling of liberation and acceptance and I want other women to experience these feelings for themselves. And I hope you have seen through this podcast how our bodies, whether you're queer, in touch with questioning your gender, working to embrace your gender and all its power, or none of those things, I hope you have seen how our bodies have historically been and are still being controlled in ways that our ours, they're ours to reclaim. Who do our bodies belong to if not to us? What story do we get to tell by living within them and through them if not our own stories? Those who overturned Roe versus Wade would argue that no, ultimately God or the Supreme Court or your local laws gets to decide what your body can or should be. Or maybe the person down the shops, the person you pass in the street, your male person, the person at the local swimming pool, the person in the local park. Who are these people that get to decide what our bodies are supposed to be? Who are these people that supposedly should have that responsibility? Should they? All together now. No! So that is my message through this podcast and all that I have referenced in it. We need to own our own bodies and stop empowering other people to try to own other people's own bodies. Whether you're in the queer community, the gender questioning community, the naturist community, the body positivity community, the recently, uh, the, the pe people who've recently given birth, we all know that people are trying to tell us stories about our own bodies that are just not theirs to tell, okay? They're our own bodies and we get to own them and our stories around them, okay? As always, go check out the amazing people I've referenced and quoted this week. Support independent art, podcasts, creators, researchers, activists. Share their work. Let them know you appreciate what they're doing. Give their bodies some love. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash drodge. That's D-R-O-D-G-E. Drodge is a growing artistic, creative community centered largely around gender. And we've got many, many exciting things coming up that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you guys. You can follow me on Instagram, that's Rebarosh, at Rebarosh, R-I-B-A-R-O-C-H-E. And I'll see you next week for episode D. D is for... See you next week, Drodgeheads. Drodgecast is a production by Barosh Voices for Drodge. A label without labels. Ooh, imagine that.